0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Here to lead Cider 101, more like beer or more like wine, and introduce our panelists is moder- moderator Jordan Berry, host of Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network.
1: Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming to talk about cider with us. Um, I would like to introduce our panel here. Next to me, we have Todd Cavallo from Wild Ark Farm in the Hudson Valley of New York. Um, Wild Ark is an experiment in sustainable food and beverage production within the small farm environment. Thanks for being here, Todd.
2: Thank you. Uh,
1: Next to Todd, we have Polly Giragosian of Aaron Burr Cider in the Lower Catskills of New York. Um, Polly is the co-owner, and Aaron Burr is known for using wild and foraged fruit. And at the end of the panel, we have Mikael Ni- Nipelius. Did I get it? Close enough? Close <laughs> enough.
3: Close enough.
0: Thank
1: uh, you. From Fruit Stereo, and he's here to join us from southern Sweden. So we are going to talk a lot about what cider is, how it relates to wine here today, being that we're at Raw. Um, And to start off, we're gonna ask the question that is the title of the panel. So is cider more like wine or more like beer? Todd, you wanna start off?
2: Uh, Well, first, everyone separated to the side they agreed with, right? Beer side and the (laughs) wine side, so we can fight it out later. Um, It's, uh, I mean, it's an interesting question and it's, um, there's two sides to it, I guess one is what uh, the producers see and one is what the consumers see. And it's been, I think, treated more like uh, beer in the marketplace for a long time. Um, but people like uh, like Polly have been making cider now for a while that's made much more like wine and in a much more thoughtful way. Um, we make wine, mostly wine, and we make wine that's more like beer sometimes, and we also make cider that's more like beer sometimes, but most of the time we're making wine in exactly the same way, or cider in exactly the same way that we make our wine, which is with extended macerations, pressed neutral oak barrels, let to natively ferment, and kind of do what it will. So we think about it primarily like wine in that it's an agricultural product that we're kind of shepherding through its own process. so I'm on the wine side.
1: And part of that point, I think, just to everyone here, cider is fermented apple juice. So Polly, in what you're doing, do you see that confusion from consumers about whether it's wine or beer? Um, yes, I definitely see that there's a confusion. Um, and
4: I agree with Todd that, I mean, in some ways, I think the more like a beer is a marketing tool maybe um, because, in general, I would say people who are into beer are maybe more likely to try alternative drinks than hardcore wine drinkers. Um, but as Jordan, as you mentioned, cider is apples pressed and fermented. So, ju- fermented juice, which is the same, it's made the same exact way wine is. And actually, I think the word cider originally also included wine as a definition. So I see the more like a beer, because beer is basically a cooked product. um, So the processes are completely different, but the marketing um, and maybe also the labeling, uh, because it'll be interesting to hear about um, the labeling problems, um, because in the United States we have this thing where you have to have your labels um, approved by the TTB. Um, so th- originally, that seven percent, um, you know, th- was meant that it was more like a wine. If it was above seven percent,
1: if it wasn't, then it could be marketed more like a beer. Uh, yeah. And Mikael, do you do your consumers in Sweden have that same confusion? Can you talk a little bit about the perception of cider there, and if it's any different than what we have here?
3: Yeah, I believe it's it's a big difference in. Uh, <laughs> In Sweden, um, cider has uh, quite a bad reputation. I mean, cider is basically what you drink until you learn how to drink beer or strong liquor. Uh, So cider has a very, very bad rep in Sweden. I mean, Swedish cider is the most sold cider in the world, but that's because it's cider with apostrophes. It's it's more like uh, Alcopop. So the Swedish cider rules differ a lot to the rest of the EU. So a lot of the ciders made in Sweden would not be allowed to be called cider probably anywhere else in the world uh, Our cider rules are that it has to be 15% fruit of apples and pears and the rest can be water sugars additives flavorings whatever you want uh, so you're not allowed to ferment Alcohol from everything else than apples and pears. So like for example, we do 100% fruit ciders all of it That we do, but we do a lot of different fruits. say uh plums or whatever so if we ferment alcohol from plums, it's not a cider, even though it's 100% fruit. But we could have done with 15% apples and then added plum flavorings afterwards and it would be a Swedish cider. Um, so in Sweden, the public or the consumer very much sees a cider as a beer or as alcohol pop. So for us, it's been a bit of a trouble to get people to actually even try our ciders because he has wriggled their nose and say, no. Thank you. I'm not 15 anymore, <laughs> so it's cool. Um, uh, but that's why we have had a bit of a bigger success with exporting. So we export 5 percent of our production. Uh, it's basically impossible for us to get into the the state-owned monopoly stores to sell to private persons. So we've been able to sell to like the Michelin Guide restaurants or to the very nerdy beer bars, <laughs> and that's that's the consumers we have. There's yeah, the natural wine drinkers and the sour bear drinkers. And we're trying to, to make that into a change, but it's, it's a very steep path. So We're hoping for, for some help from everyone else, but also from, from yeah, yes, the, the thought of cider as being maybe more like wine, than, I guess.
1: I would love to hear from each of you what brought you to cider, and then a little bit about the ciders that you make. Um, What kind of fruit are you using? What are your methods like? Maybe start with Polly?
4: Um, So I think we came to cider originally Um, uh, My husband Andy has always been really into apples and we bought an old farmstead that had about ten old trees on it and um, We had a bumper crop of apples and we were like, oh, we can make our own alcohol Um, so, but I also think the whole historical side to cider and the more that we've gotten into it, how we were talking about how in the part of of New York where we're in, um, the southern Catskills, there's always been a, there's been a cider culture there for a long time. And, um, so we make cider, um, we have an orchard of about five acres of trees of varying Um, ages Um, and then we also forage for apples we've developed relationships with people in the community to collect apples and um, so we um, we also make cider blends an elderberry apple and an apple grape uh, but those are used um, using farmed apples as opposed to the uncultivated apples so it try to be as pure as possible minimal intervention well
1: Mikael
3: um, well, I'm a sommelier from the start. So sommelier restaurant owner thing um, So both me and Carl is two of us. We are sommeliers as a base and we still see ourselves as sommeliers and not really cider makers um, We also import wine and have a restaurant So we came into cider because we wanted to make wine But we don't really have the, <laughs> the climate for making wine in Sweden So we started at a winery in Sweden, um, uh, Sweden's only organic winery, and we thought that we wanted to do something, and there were no grapes, so we started with apples, because there's shitloads of apples everywhere in Sweden. (laughs) It's a a big problem, actually this year they won't even accept more apples at the dump, so people are (laughs) trying to throw away apples, but aren't allowed to do it. So we started with the apples that were at the vineyard because nobody was using them, and blended them with some plums, that were also there, and a little bit of grapes, and a little bit of what we found, and we had a lot of fun doing it. So we, we wanted to do like two, 300 liters, and it ended up being three and a half, four and a half thousand liters. And now we are on our second vintage, it's done, and we're starting on our third. It's just been going really fast, because cider is a lot of fun, especially when you don't have like a big tradition wearing you down. I mean, for us, we can blend whatever we want because nobody's done it before, basically. So nobody's telling us that we're doing anything wrong, <laughs> um, which is uh, a big relief. And I guess when you come from the wine world, it's, uh, it's nice, yes, not to be enclosed by rules and, and old vintages and old um, thoughts about what you are making. A saint is a sans if it tastes like this, but Sebastian Rifour begs to differ for example. <laughs> and that's kind of what we want to do with cider as well, to prove that it can be something else than a coppabärs or a record sweet Swedish cider, that we are capable of doing fantastic things with a fruit nobody sees a value in. Because that's the case right now. Basically, people are paying to get rid of their apples because they're in the way of the lawnmower. And I mean, there's fantastic quality there that should be used and should be appreciated.
1: And Todd, how about you?
2: Uh, we don't have that problem because we have deer that eat all the apples that fall off the trees. That's got to get some deer populations going there. Yeah. Um, so I came to cider um, probably first I guess because I grew up upstate New York and then I lived in the city for 18 years and when I was there, uh, like every other, you know, Brooklynite, I was making beer and cider and kombucha and fermenting everything I can get my hands on in my apartment, but I never did wine because I wanted to make wine from grapes and I couldn't source New York's grapes up there and I could get the apples and the cider and everything else so when I finally moved out of the city and got some land it was kind of on a whim at first like oh maybe eventually I'll, I'll do this wine thing but we planted a half an acre year one we made some wine with purchase grapes year one it turned out really well um, people liked it and so I kind of left my uh, part-time job in the city and con- concentrated full-time on the wine and the cider and um, just being in the Hudson Valley, being surrounded by these amazing orchards all over the place. And there are vineyards there that are, you know, they're nice, but they're young. There's 20-year-old vineyards. Maybe that's an old find in New York because when things get unproductive in New York, they rip it up, but there are these beautiful old orchards everywhere with huge old gnarled trees, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, and so if you really want to get the terroir of a place, you, you can't be Just using the new vines because that's what you want to do we're like let's find some of these old trees and let's make some some cider from them Um, and we're making some ciders from the same site that we're making some of our wines from so we can see how the terroir expresses itself from the same you know granitic loamy soil shaved off the Shuangunk Ridge in the vineyard and in the trees that are right next to it whereas the trees have actually been there for 60 years it's an old farm and they're uncultivated and unsprayed trees, so we really get a much purer expression of it. And hopefully, over the years, as we're making things the same way, with the same kind of standard macerations, we'll be able to say, hey, like, look, this cider does this here, and these grapes do this here. Different fruits, but what are the common threads? And so, to us, that's the most interesting. And eventually, we'll probably do some co-macerations and, and do some of the Venice ciders that everyone's talking about now. Um, but really, it's just from being in the Hudson Valley and seeing what we could do with the amazing fruit that's growing all around us.
1: We'll definitely get back to talking about terroir and talking about co fermentations, because um, those are kind of what sorry, I.
2: Sorry
1: to jump the gun. No, that's great to kind of touch on the things at the beginning and the end. But let's talk about the apples that you guys are using. Um, where are they coming from? What are they? And should consumers start to think about what the apple varieties are? Um, that the producers are using in their ciders? Um, Miguel, you (laughs) start?
3: Well, in Sweden, we don't have cider apples. Uh, There's a few trees here and there, but not really. But we have a lot of eating apples, a lot of table apples, a lot of apples with high acidity and high sugar levels. Um, So our decision has always been, our, our decision, but our moral standpoint is that if we can't even throw away our apples, And if people aren't using the apples that are there, there's no reason for us to plant new trees. So we should really source our apples from the trees that are already here. So we knock on doors, uh, pick from people's gardens, have some abandoned apple orchards, orchards, sorry. Um, Amongst those one with two and a half thousand trees half an hour away from our cidery, which we are free to pick as much as we want to. This guy rents it for $1 a year and uh, yeah, it's been abandoned for 30 years. It's two and a half thousand trees, and it was planted by a professor um, at the local agricultural university at the 50s. So it's a fantastic blend of apple sorts, and that's not unusual in southern Sweden. There's a bunch of abandoned apple orchards everywhere, and I mean everybody's got apple trees in their garden, but all they do is bake pies. So it's like there's so much fruit to go around. So sometimes we say that we don't really choose the apple, the apple chooses us, <laughs> and then we just have to learn how to, uh, how to show that from its best side. I mean, there's a lot of different varieties in Sweden of eating apples, and even though maybe some of them are very boring, we still want to use it, because otherwise it would kind of go against our moral standpoint. It's just about us trying to find a way of transmitting the flavors of that apple in the best type of way Maybe that is to blend it with seabuck fawn or slowberries, honey or To do a bear with it Some apple sorts are perfect for doing single varieties some aren't and some terroirs are different I mean there's a big difference between a Bramley apple tree that's over 125 years old that's been standing on this abandoned farm and the grown bramley apple trees which are five ten years old i mean it's basically completely different apple sorts so it's not just about the apple varieties it's also where it's been grown what's been dealing with the trees um, so i'm not sure that the apple variety itself guarantees a certain flavor profile it's not like oh i want a chardonnay or i want a Riesling. Yeah. Um, that's not really how it works especially when you work with apples that we are foraging because they are so different. I mean, an English Marie apple can be completely red or it can be greenish orange. And it, that's just a color difference. Then the flavor profile can be extremely different as well. So for me, it's more up to uh, buying cider after the producer maybe or after the terroir or the style. That's why we try to like keep our labels more into like it's this style of cider and uh, uh, in, instead of it being like 100% of this apple variety.
1: Todd, you had a similar story about the apples choosing you, um, the cider that you're pouring today here at the fair. Can you tell that to us? Yeah,
3: you? so we don't have the
2: embarrassment of riches that they have in Sweden with the apples. Uh, we're, you know, there's a lot of apples and a lot of orchards in the Hudson Valley, but um, a lot of them, can be sold for a lot more money in markets as eating apples and the cider varieties are very hotly contested. And until some of the new plantings come online for sale, it's been a little hard to source fruit um, until our trees come into production also. So, uh, you know, you just, you find what you can. And so I got a guy, an apple guy. Apple Mike is his name. Um, He uh, he found me on Craigslist because I posted an ad looking for apples when I was moving up there. And year one, he showed up with a bunch of Northern Spies, which are amazing cider apples. And I'm waiting, you know, year two for him to bring his Northern Spy delivery to me and he shows up with a pickup truck full of Golden Delicious and Crispins, which are golden eating apples. And I said, what the heck, I took them, I blended them with some quince that we were macerating and I pressed it into a neutral barrel and let it just natively ferment and it sat for six months being really weird and funky and Reductive, And I was like, oh, well, that was a failed experiment. And then it turned a corner and became something interesting that I'm actually very happy with now. But yeah, in that case, the the apples chose me. And, and this year, I'm still struggling to find apple sources because all of the wild trees that we had used last year didn't produce this year. Um, and a lot of the other stands that people had that they said we might be able to have access to aren't producing. So that's one of the issues with, uh, with the wild untended trees is that they, they tend to shift towards this biennial production. Um, and so, you know, one year you can have a ton and the next year you've got nothing. So we're struggling, we made some more wine this year um, and we make, a, we make a piquette, which is like a beer like wine. And so we're just making more of that this year and hopefully we do find some apples before the end of the season. Apples, you get a little more leeway with because you can sweat them for a month or two, so I'm holding out hope that someone's got bins of Northern Spy somewhere for me, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, we it kind of hypocritically blend all of our apples from the sites, whereas we do single varietal wines from the um, most of the grapes that we use. Um, and maybe that'll change. We did a lot more co-macerations with the grapes this year because, as my friend Zach would say, um, variety trumps terroir, and if you really want to show the terroir, you show the broad spectrum of it across multiple varieties, so we're already doing that with apples, we're starting to do it more with grapes. Um, but people are making a lot of single varietal stuff now, and it's just another interesting expression, if you can get the varieties that make good apples by
1: themselves, and or ciders. Polly, what makes a good cider apple, and what do you look for with the foraged fruit that you're using?
4: Well, I think because, I mean, we look for, um, I think it's not so much the variety as how the apple is grown. Um, so um, as Mikel said, you could have an apple that's 100 years old, the same variety, versus something that's just 5 to 10 years old. And if it's never been farmed, never fertilized, never irrigated, um, meaning it's going to be low in nitrogen. Um, it's going um, So the when it starts to ferment, it, it's not going to be overly um, um, about crazy ferment it's gonna be a slow ferment Um, but I think when we look for apples in the wild um, we'll taste them looking for acid sugar and tannin Um, so not all wild apples have them so I'm assuming everyone here knows that if you take an apple and you plant those five seeds like from a Macintosh you don't get a Macintosh tree so in some ways I think, I mean there are certain apples, like we have in the past made a golden russet cider from a single variety. Um, but if you look, if you read um, all the you know, ancient horticulturists from like the 18th century to the 19th to the early 20th, they all cite the best ciders made from a blend of apples. So it's rare that one apple would have the acid, tannin and sugar
1: for a single varietal. Something that you mentioned, Mikael, is the term alco pop. And I feel like part of the biggest problem with cider and its perception is the issue of dryness. Um, all of the ciders that you guys make fall into what most people would consider a very kind of dry style. Let's talk a little bit about dryness in cider versus sweetness and how we can help consumers understand that cider isn't always alco pop. do you want to start?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question, and that's really um, something uh, me and Carl have been talking a lot about. It's like, should we even call our drink cider? <laughs> Is that such a negative word that it's actually just bringing us down? Should we call it fruit pet nut or <laughs> fruit wine instead? Maybe just create our own brand, and that way we don't have to bother about the rules of it. Um, we are actually leaning towards that because it's, yes, so it can be a very negative term, especially in Sweden, especially in Scandinavia, for the cider, I think more than in other places in the world, because, uh, especially with the dry cider, I also find it a little bit weird, that it's like 30 grams of, of limit for dry cider. It's like, for me, that's, as a sommelier, 30 grams, that's like, that's a sweet wine. <laughs> that's a dessert wine, um, and to, have that to mask some of the other styles or some of the lack of whatever flavors or acidity you have. It's also a way of kind of manipulating your cider, um, but I'm I'm not sure. It's a very very tough question, and a question which uh, I think takes more than three vintages to find out what will be the right answer.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and it would be nice that the more people you meet in the cider business to get some more input and to actually understand that there are other people also struggling with these questions. Should we market ourselves as doing dry cider, really, when there are, well, thousands of producers in France doing dry cider that aren't really dry, Um, or is that really, like, should we be forced to put a word like dry in front of cider, yes, so people would taste it? should we be forced to call it artisanal cider, should we be forced to do that when it's actually a lot of people using the word cider in the wrong way or is it we that look at cider in the wrong way? I don't know.
1: Polly, are people surprised when they try your ciders that they're not that sweetness? Um, oh yes, well I also sell our cider at the farmers market so um, and actually i learned
4: this from um, Louisa at Farnham Hill that to always tell someone first before they Drink it; that it's dry, but um, many, you know, a lot of people are like, "Oh, that is dry!" Like they didn't expect it. But I will say that Andy and I, it's the word cider is very problematic. We've talked about calling our some of our ciders fruit wines, Mm -hmm. just because like the negative connotation. There's so many ciders um, that are made from you know big commercial cideries, um, and the the language is so there's no definition you could say dry and it's actually quite sweet so it's it's a tough problem it's a hard problem i mean it comes it helps if people can taste it and try it but um that's a lot of work
1: and todd you referenced earlier the term venice ciders do you consider yourself a venice cider maker or do you describe it in a different way? Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's used a lot lately to talk about the comacerations of grapes with apples, but I think Venice as a descriptor for something that is more wine-like can definitely be applicable when you're trying to make a a cider that's got depth and body and acid and tannin um, and balance. Um, I mean, we also, you know, we're lucky in environments like this where people understand dryness versus sweetness and natural wines are essentially always gonna be dry because we're not adding enough sulfur to stop fermentations and we're not sterile filtering. So unless we're adding some alcohol to make a, like a port style wine, we can't have a sweet wine and it's the same for the ciders. And so as people start to understand that more um, just in the realm of you know natural artisanal production, hopefully, it catches on outside of, you know, the places that are already interested in that stuff. Um, but I mean, even up by us, we still have a problem where if we're saying we're making cider, people are thinking we're making like non-hard ciders. Like, oh, you got a cider press? That's cute, we'll come by in the fall and get some hot cider.
1: With our children. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Get donuts.
2: <laughs> we should probably make some donuts. Um, but I mean, it's, there, there is still that market for that, and so you know we're gonna be fighting against the people who are marketing that product as well. Um, and it's the same in the wine world. People in places like the Hudson Valley where we are go to a winery and expect to get sweet rose, and if we don't have it, they're upset. And the same thing I'm sure is true if you're making ciders and people are expecting at least one sweet option and we have none, so. Happy to fight the good fight, but. <laughs>
1: Uh, let's talk a little bit more about co and how each of you is playing around both with the perception of cider in this wine world, but also literally mixing the things together. Um, Todd, you can start.
2: Um, we haven't done too much other than experimental stuff yet. We've done a lot of stuff where we're mixing apples, quince, honey, and uh, and grapes, but They've all been very small batches for our own experimentation. Some have been successful, um, some less so. Uh, but I think now, once we get to solidify our grape and apple contracts or agreements, with you know, mostly handshake agreements around here, moving forward, then I think we'll be more likely to say, okay, let's try this this year with you know a ton of this fruit and see what happens. Um, but yeah, not yet anything for release.
4: And Polly. Um, So we do do some, I don't know if I would totally call them co-ferments, but elderberry with apple, I mean they don't, they're co-fermented at a certain point but, um, or the apple, grape, um, they are actually fermented separately and then um, combined before bottling. Um, So we mostly we've used the co-ferments when we maybe didn't have apples that we felt would be a standalone cider. Um, We've never compared Except until this year, we've never um, combined apple and pear. Uh, but this year there were so few apples, everything just got thrown into the same barrel. Um,
1: but yeah. And Mikael, you're doing a lot of that.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Most of our drinks are co-ferments, I guess. Um, at least if you count like apples and pears as being a co-ferment, because um, that's a lot of what we do. And I mean, they struggle with doing co-ferment, so. It's kind to make people understand that it's nothing really weird with it. <laughs> uh, it's not like wine and cider has to be just grapes or apples, according to us at least. For us, it's more of a terroir-based thing. And I think that some apples will, will improve with elderflower, for example, or with slowberries or seabuck fawn. We do plums, and I mean 100% plums, that's quite harsh. But together with apples and a little bit of pears and a little bit of grapes, yeah, that's uh, that's a fantastic blend. We, I got a Bouchelet Nouveau kind of stylish thing with me here, which is 60% grapes, red grapes, with one day maceration. And then 30% of flawed pear with 10% apple. And this year is a great, great grape year in Sweden. So we're gonna do uh, quite a lot of wine. But it's a little bit too boring, just yes, to do it with wine. So we we'll probably blend in some pears or apples in those as well. It's, it's Sweden. <laughs> we get complexity through fruit, not grapes.
1: We always also. joke here in the US cider industry that it's the Wild West, but I think you've got us beat. <laughs> uh,
3: excuse me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I said, I think Sweden's the real Wild West of the, of the cider uh, world maybe. right now. We got
3: no drinking culture, really, except for hard liquor. So. so. <laughs>
1: I want to talk to each of you about what it's like being here at RAW. In it's a wine fair. You're pouring some wines, some things with grapes. But what's been the response to the ciders, particularly for each of you, from the drinkers here? Um, Polly, start.
4: Um, I think it's I mean, at first I was a little unsure, you know, because people, if they're dedicated wine drinkers, sometimes when you drink a cider, it doesn't have the same kind of body. Um, In general, I would say um, probably our ciders that have more body, like the pear or the elderberry that I'm pouring, um, or maybe seeing things, I'm seeing that people like that more, more responsive to it. Um, Because I think sometimes just the pure apple, it takes a certain amount of um, just tasting that and trying that and becoming more used to it. But I think it's also people are surprised to drink it
1: and then it's dry. And Mikael.
3: Well, I'm a, I'm a sommelier, so I'm quite used to these type of fairs. We import wine as well. Um, but the most common response away is, "Wow, man, cool label. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's a, a good thing that attracts their attention. And if they start by liking the label, they have a more positive approach to the drink, even though it might be something new to them. But going to raw fair, if it's New York, Berlin, London, or whatever, it's always people who are very, very open to new flavors and very open to this taste profile of well, I think all three of our ciders kind of have with the high acidity and and the low tannin structure kind of and very easy drinking stuff. And um, I can see there's a pattern at least in Scandinavia where it's not a high alcoholic wine, so the oaked wines. It's the Whoa, 8% Gamay, fuck yeah! (laughs) So, um, I think there's a bright future for cider and the low alcoholic drinks. And Todd? Yeah,
2: so we're only pouring one cider out of our five things, and then one of our wines is a a second wash, so you add water to the pomace and press it again, so I bookend my wines with a 7% cider and a 7% wine. Um, And, you know, people have been more responsive or said more to those two things than most of the wines because there's a thousand wines here and people are drinking you know Chardonnay and Cab Franc and even other hybrid wines all day but if you can start with something that's a little different and end with something that's a little different I think it's um, it's more interesting for the people who are marathoning through and for the people who kind of are looking for something different you know maybe they Seek out that kind of stuff, and uh, we definitely had a good response from from bookending with those two things.
1: And are people asking the same questions? So back to thinking about terroir, is that something that comes to mind for people drinking cider, or are they is there something else that they're kind of stuck on first, um, Todd?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I get the same the same questions about everything. Where where the where's the fruit sourced from? What's the terroir like? What's the soil like? How is it grown? Um, I don't, it's probably partially that the crowd that's here is thinking about those things already. That's why a lot of us are here because the growing methods that we're using are as important as the vinification really. Um, And yeah, I don't know if if in the the general cider consuming public if people are thinking about that as much, but really the general wine consuming public isn't either. It's the people who are really kind of focused on um, what they put in their bodies, eating, drinking, partying, relaxing, whatever it may be, that are asking those questions all the time, and those are all the people that are out there, so.
1: And Polly, with you, how do you explain to someone the kind of delight and aura of a wild apple, and especially thinking about things like terroir?
4: Well, sometimes it helps because we actually bottle the wild apple ciders um, according to the soil map of our county And so sometimes it helps if people can taste those side by side Of course some of it depends on what apples were found there um, but I also think just um, Having the apples being able to see the apple or even hold the apple because um, It's so different like a wild apple than an eating apple so that that also kind of helps and Mikael?
3: Yeah, exactly. What was the question? <laughs> <Sorry>.
1: <laughs> the, are people asking questions about things like terroir, or is it the fact that it's a cider kind um, of what's surprising them the most?
3: Not really. I think everything is so new that I haven't gotten a single question all day about what type of soils we have in Skorne, for example.
1: What type that, of soils do you have?
3: <laughs> limestone, very rich soils actually. It's like you know, most of the, of the farming production in Sweden is from there. So clay and limestone, so quite good for apples. Yes. Um, but no, that's not really the questions we get. No. It's more, um, what's the alcohol level in this? <laughs> Whoa, this is really dry. What's the sugar level? <laughs> um, and I get that. That's like what you can relate to, I guess. So cider is new, even though you are experienced, so many cider is a quite new uh, area. Mm-hmm.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit, um, and then we'll open for some questions, but Todd and Mikael, your cideries are both, or and wineries are both relatively new, and Polly, you've been around a little longer. Is, does cider have aging potential? And are you, this is a trick question, but are you vintage dating your ciders? Um, Polly, would you talk about that? Yes, I definitely think cider has aging
4: um, potential because the high acids, the tannins, and actually the cider you're drinking is from 2015. Um, so it was picked and pressed in 2015, which was a really big apple year, and then bottled in 2016. So it's been in the bottle for a couple of years. Um, so I mean, I think it, it changes as time goes on, but um, and one way that we've gotten around the whole, you can't put a vintage year on the label, it's just almost almost like a signature. I mean, I know there's other ways of putting that on, but I think that's important because then people can see what
1: year, what did those apples come from? When were they picked and pressed? And does vintage matter in cider? We talked a little bit about how these wild apples at least are biannual. um, And so thinking about that for Mikel and Todd, when you, if you are indicating vintage to your consumer, what are you hoping to tell them with that? Mikael?
3: Well, it's a big difference between vintages. It's just like wine, basically. I mean, the sugar levels are different. The alcohol will be different. The acidity is different. This year in Sweden, we had a drought for four four months, basically. So all the apples are really, really small, which means we're going to have a little bit more tannin than we're used to, Um, compared to last year when it was just raining a lot. So the alcohol levels were quite low. Um, But also the flavor-wise will be very, very different from year to year. And if not, it's just interesting also to be be able to follow the producer from year to year to know, like, the big difference, or taste the difference between the vintages. And, um, well, maybe you develop a little bit as well. It's just like wine. I'm a big vintage drinker. I don't like drinking. 2015, Europe are basically from anywhere. <laughs> but I love 16, I love 17, I love 14. Um, and I think that shows in cider as well. So definitely vintage does matter and you can store cider. Most of our ciders that we did the first year taste better now than ever. So if we had the money, I promise you we would keep them all. But <laughs> um, yeah, maybe we'll have that luxury in the future. Together with oak barrels and (laughs) um, amphoras, yeah, a lot of good stuff.
1: Todd, are you holding back any of your ciders? Uh, I
3: am now, but I, 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 same
2: thing. I had maybe like half a case of our first vintage from '16 that I've slowly been going through, and every time I open one, I'm like, damn should have saved these all longer. Um, and I also just had uh, 15 uh, from the East Branch, that's what it was, um, that I had from them that I'd been having in my cellar for a while. And we were talking about one of our mutual friends who just, he's, he's like an archeologist, he'll come up from his cellar with like a six, seven, eight-year-old cider that he bought somewhere that his friends made and they're like, how do you still have that? I forgot that even existed. And so I've had the good fortune of drinking some more aged ciders with him and it's always been an eye-opening experience as much as any wine I've ever had with, with a little bit of age on it. So I definitely think they can age Um, sometimes we forget that we can't vintage date but the label gets through the TTB anyway (laughs) Uh, I think I've gotten a couple ciders out with with vintage dates on them for some reason they pick on other things although they're not letting me call my quince cider a cider this year so we've got that to argue about Um, but definitely vintage dating is important for apples beyond the, the the yields which are wildly variable like, like you said, the, um, everything about the flavor profile, the, I mean, the amount of rain is gonna increase or decrease the liquid content so you get more sugar or less sugar, you get more tannin or less depending on the size. It's definitely equally as important in cider as it is in wine.
1: And I'm gonna ask one more question and then we'll open it up. But what do each of you see as the future of cider? Um, in the U.S. globally, where do you, and if it's something different than what you hope, what do you hope it would be? Todd?
2: Um, I, I hope that the, the more handmade things uh, take off in the same way that they've started to do a little bit more in the wine world. Um, I'd like to see, you know, 750s of cider in every grocery store um, that now sells, you know, all the national brands. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping the wine thing continues on that upswing also. I hope that you, know, you can go home to your Thanksgiving dinner and your auntie from wherever else she lives in the country is like, oh, oh have you heard about these uh, artisanal ciders and natural wines? <laughs> it's the next big thing. Um, because that'll mean more people can make those things and grow them in the way that they're you know, taking care of the land. And, and so the more people we can get growing things, especially something that's a luxury product, there's no excuse not to be growing organically. And so the more people we can get doing that across the country and across the world, I think the better the outcome will be. Um, not to give too big an answer to the question, but.
1: You're allowed I, to dream. That's it's what okay. I'd like to see. <laughs> Polly? I guess
4: I'd have to say the same. I think the more, um, because these are small artisanal products, the more people that are doing that, doing it, growing and producing things, um, the more people are aware. Um, I mean, it seems now like cider is kind of, um, there's, some, there's like big companies that have kind of taken over cider in New York, but uh, in some ways that can be an entry into smaller um, produced ciders. So I think the more people, um, because it, basically cider is something that you can do yourself. I mean, it's not that difficult. Um, and I meet people who in the city all the time are coming up to buy sweet cider to like, you know, ferment it in their closet. So I think the more people that kind of take things into their own hands, ideally, um, you know, more people will become aware of it. Will it ever become some mass-produced, mass idea?
1: I don't know. That might be the for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Mika.
3: Well, I think co-fermentation's a big thing, of course. And I'm not really big on, I don't know, cider is hard. Like I said, maybe we should call it something else. I don't know if that's giving up giving <laughs> that name to the big bad Alcopop product producers, but we need to make people aware of that they are actually quality being done with fruit, that it can be or would stain or be in the same complexity range as a wine or a really good sour beer. And because that's a little bit of the trouble with cider is that it's, it takes about as much work and time as it does to make a wine, but it's really hard to to get the same type of money as you get from a wine. And at the same time, you see these sour breweries who's popping up everywhere, you can do the same sour beer every month, charging twice as much as we do for our cider, and you're like, come on. <laughs> That's 90% water. <laughs> um, but I think that could be like the, the opening for Cider is that we can be a bridge between wine and sour beer community. And thanks to the sour beer community growing in such a rapid pace, we also can have a little bit of an advantage compared to wine that we can actually have like two markets. The markets for the better restaurants kind of thing and for the better wine shops, but also for the nerdier beer shops and the nerdier beer bars. And I mean, some some of our biggest clients are nerdy beer bars. Kegs, yes, they don't really care. Or they care a lot, but they are willing to take a chance, more than, say, a Michelin Guide restaurant. There's, yeah, give us five kegs, you choose, we take whatever, okay? (laughs) And then two weeks later, they say the same thing. (laughs) And I mean, to sell 100 liters of beer, uh, like every other week to a really fantastic selecting beer bar, that is something that can make and break us, or that is something that can make us, or break us, maybe. (laughs) I really see the future there in not being too picky or not being too head on into the wine world, but to actually see an opportunity into the beer drinkers as well. And that's uh, one of the few perks of cider, and we should really take advantage of it, that we can be a link between the two worlds.
0: Great,
1: I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Are there any questions from the audience?
0: Yeah.
2: Do you see cider as a sparkling product?
0: Only cider I've never seen a still cider. I mean,
2: maybe a barely unpleasant one, but um It's very hard to sell still ciders both as the maker and when you go to restaurants with your products, they'll say, we, we can't sell a still cider. I don't know if you've had that same experience, but I've been told that by multiple uh, buyers at restaurants. It's just harder to sell. Pe- people want uh, bubbles. they probably thinking that it's a fun product. Still ciders are harder to sell, but the ciders that we consider more Venice, we bottle still. So. <laughs>
0: I mean,
4: we have sold st- um, still cider, uh, most some through our New York distributor, but then also at the farmer's markets. And it's usually we take cider that we don't think is, a lot of times cider that we don't think is great. Um, <laughs> but actually right now we have a wild apple cider that was um, from Maine, apples from Maine, completely wild, and it was bottled still. And people have to like the still drink. Some people want the bubbles, so I do think there's a market for it. Like South Hill, um, who's in New York State, they make a the still cider that's sold in wine shops. Um, so it, it does make it more wine-like without the bubbles.
3: I think it's the mouthfeel when you have such low alcohol as you have in cider, it. it's really nice to have a little bit of bubbles um, to get the complexity and to get the freshness as well. But I mean, there's been some, because we do bottle conditioning, we don't prime or anything like, just like these two. So um, sometimes you bottle them a little bit more still than you want to.
0: <laughs>
3: And that's just uh, part of the learning curve, I guess, with being a new cidery. Um, but at times we also think that bottling with just a little bit of bubbles, Yes, for protection, maybe. I mean, we don't use sulfites or anything. So it's good with a little bit of carbon dioxide in the, in the bottle as well for, for storing reasons and for safety and all that. Um, but some ciders we like to have more bubbly and some less sparkling. We would like to uh, take the leap of doing still cider as well. But I think we would like to have a little bit of high in alcohol then, yeah. Are
1: there any other questions? Yeah, good. He's not a plant, I promise. What
0: is some of the challenges that apples present compared to another type of sugar source What What was that last part?
4: Sorry.
1: question is are there pleasures or challenges of working with apples as opposed to other fruit?
3: Well for us apples the luxury one. First of all, they behave kinda of like grapes, because they ferment all the density or all the sugar. We don't have a fancy lab. We have basically a oxymeter in a water glass. So it's really basic. But all of that density will most of the cases, at least 95% of the cases, ferment out completely dry when it comes to apples. So it's really easy to calculate when to bottle, how is it behaving, the like the tempo it's fermenting in. While say pear is um, it's a wild one. <laughs> uh, the volatile can get extreme very fast. Uh, all of the density does not ferment out. Ferment out and it's a huge difference from when you pick him where you picked them So basically what we do with pears is always take a little bit a couple of liters put it in the warmest room We have and like do a turbo <laughs> fermentation of it next to the radiator in our bathroom <laughs> And that way we know how much density it will keep that's not fermentable, but sometimes he has stops anyway um, So pears are fun Because they always give you a little bit of density that you sometimes can lack when you don't have residual sugar in your ciders, like with apples. So when you don't have the residual sugar and you don't have the alcohol, like you have in a wine, the density uh, is something that you can struggle with a little bit, or a lot of people struggle with. Say beer, you have carbohydrates to give density, but not in cider. Apple cider, zero carbohydrates, zero sugar can get quite watery and especially when you have high acidity and no tannins, like we do with Scandinavian apples. And that's why it's nice to blend with a little bit of pears. But that's why you have to learn to handle each fruit differently. Like plums, extremely different as well. They can be very fast or very slow. They can be very fast at start and then be very slow, depending on when you're racking. So it's a a learning curve. And it's really hard to try and teach that to people. because the fruits behave so differently from year to year or from where they're grown. And to just say plums as one thing, is just like saying grapes as one thing. It's the difference between a Riesling and a Pinot Noir, just like they are between different styles of plums. So yeah, it's, it's challenges, but it's fun. And you have to be open-minded. I mean, we blended, uh, we done like cider bears, for example. Sometimes you get very jealous of beer makers. <laughs> Damn, that looks easy. (laughs) I'm sure it's not. I'm sure it's not, but it's like, uh But if
2: you mess it up, you can just do it again.
3: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: We only get one chance with the fruit.
3: Malt vinegar is quite nice as well.
1: (laughs) Great. Well, thank you all for being here on the panel today. And thanks, everyone, for coming.